to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Peter Rivera also known as Peter Horlbeck, and best known as drummer and lead singer of the seminal rock funk band Rare Earth during its peak success of the late 1960s and early 1970s. Breaking the mold as a white group signed to Motown Records, Rare Earth racked up four straight top 30 albums and five top 20 singles. Those songs included sizzling remakes of The Temptations, I Know I'm Losing You, and Get Ready, as well as the all-time funk rock classics Born to Wander and I Just Want to Celebrate. Rivera broke from the band in the mid-1970s to record two albums as a third of Capitol Records group known as Hub, or H-U-B. He then rejoined Rare Earth from the late 1970s through the mid-1980s. In more recent years, Rivera has done two albums under his own name, and in 2021 has been releasing new songs, including the up-tempo Shutting Down and the mellow Lifetime. Peter, thank you for joining the show. How are you? Well, I'm just fine, man. Just fine. Up here in Spokane, Washington, raining like crazy today right now. Wow. Well, I don't think that's a bad thing for most of the country. No, we need it. It's been 105 degrees these last few days. I mean, just amazing. Anyways, that's enough about the weather. <laughs> well, thanks for joining the show. Much appreciated. I've been a fan since 1970. You know, your uh, music with Rare Earth helped awaken the love of uh, soul, funk, and rock music in me as a young boy and uh um, you know so i appreciate that uh, glad to have been of assistance thank you very much well it goes back a ways and uh i'm really happy when i hear people say that they've you know been a fan since way back then you know that's just really really what it's all about well back then uh in fourth grade actually uh on fridays they would let us bring records in and dance uh, at the end of the day 
And, um, you know, Rare Earth was among those records that was brought in. And then I also remember around that time, um, there was a four record Motown compilation set that was like 64 greatest Motown songs. And, uh, you know, of course, the Born to Wander and I Just Want to Celebrate were both on that. So, oh, yeah, yeah. good. I'm surprised because Rare Earth was really not uh, in the thick of the Motown thing. We were always like knocking on the door to get in the room with everybody. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of one of those feelings. I think that way back then it felt like, who are these uh, blue-eyed souls infiltrating our our family-owned company, Motown? The artists were just fantastic with us. Marvin and Stevie and Gladys and David Ruffin, not to be a name dropper, but those were the people that we saw all the time. And they were sweet. They loved us. They loved the fact that the blue-eyed soul was doing some stuff like, you know, get ready and losing you and all that. The office people, administration, they had a little different feeling on things, you know. They they were kind of protective and and kind of uh, suspicious of just what we were all about. We were just a bunch of guys in a band, you know. Motown had a way of doing things. It was much like a production line. Is, which is where Barry Gordy came from. He used to work in the car business. But the the producer would come up and say, hey, I got four tunes that I think Martha Reeves can do. And they'd say, well, let's hear the tunes, a committee. Okay, we like the tunes, so here, we're going to give you some session notes. You can go in and hire four guys and cut some rhythm tracks. So then they want to hear the rhythm tracks. Okay, we like that, so now we're going to give you session notes. You can bring in the singers and do some group harmony and all that. Oh, we like that. Here's some more session notes. So on and on until the project was finished. When we came, we didn't know from notes. We didn't want committees. We just wanted studio time. Give us a studio, let us do what we want to do, and we'll hand you a record. We'll give you something. And that's what happened the first time we went down there. We were given five nights. We were in the nightclubs till one. And we tore our equipment down, and by 2 o'clock, we were over there at West Grand Boulevard in Motown, setting up. Couldn't move the drums over there because they had a little 11-year-old kid that was blind who played the drums, so he knew where they were, so don't move them. Okay, fine. So we went in the studio five nights from 2 o'clock till about 8.30 in the morning. Had to get out of there by then because at 8.39, that's when the administration staff came in which is typing and bookkeeping and all that stuff that a company does. And the studio was in the house. So you can't be like banging it out. Anyway, after five, when we went in, we didn't know what to record. We had no producer. It was ourselves. So we did the five or six most popular songs in the club. So each guy did a song. Okay, you do, uh, we get the songs and, and the engineer says, and Get Ready was on there. It was three minutes long. It was a, a song at the club. So the engineer says, well, you're 10 minutes short. You got to have 16 minutes on each side of a vinyl album. So you're 10 minutes short. Well, what are we going to do? Hey, guys, why don't we go back in? Let's do Get Ready again like we do on a Saturday night when everybody's juiced. You know, because that's what happened. And that's when we'd play for 15, 20 minutes on one song, and everybody in the band would take solos. Okay, John, go for it. Blah, 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 you know, And we did that. It was so much fun. So we did that in the studio. We were all done. The engineer said, you got enough time now? Great. So they put this together, and we thought we had a record. It came out two, three, four months later, nothing. We thought, well, back to the clubs. So much for that. Well, Barney Ellis, the VP of Motown, who was hired by Barry way back in the 60s to go down south and pick up Barry's money that he couldn't get because of his skin color. Barney went down, got the money, came back. Barry made him a VP. So years rolled on. Barney comes up and says, Barry, we're missing a lot of market share. There's a thing called album rock. It's called FM rock. College stations, English acts, sweeping the country. And we're not in there. We're still juicing our 45 singles, okay? So Barry says, well, we ain't going to do it. You do it. So Barney did. He wanted to form a record company. He didn't have a name for it. So we said, well, why don't you call it Rare Earth Records? I mean, the timing was right. We were finished with that album, and it was like a month or two into it. We said, why don't you call it Rare Earth? He says, I think I will. So he did, and we had a big party 
And he brought all the record people, the news people, the writers and everything, the press. And he went over and he bought about three or four masters from England. Because they were so new at this that they just figured if you're from England, you got to be good. Just like in baseball, they say, if you pitch and you come from the Dominican, let's give you a contract. I mean, that's really. And so anyways, and they were nice guys, these other bands, but really they never did anything really. Uh, we were the only ones that really got. So Barney being as smart as he is, and he was a brilliant record man. Yeah. Rest, to, rest in peace, Barney. He did a lot for us. He had the engineers take three minutes off of the Get Ready song. So here we go. Now the promotion army of the company takes out our single along with the temps and the four tops and all that. And he manages to get it played a little bit in Washington, D.C. And then in Atlanta, in, 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 in Baltimore, Chicago. And all of a sudden, we're, in, we're on the charts with the single of Get Ready, but it really morphed into the jocks at the FM radio loved it because they could put that record on and they had 21 minutes and 30 seconds to go out in the parking lot with their baby or smoke a fatty. I don't know what they're doing, but they loved to be able to get up and walk around for 20 minutes. You know, so anyways, it snowballed and we sold millions of records and then we were off to the races, you know, no more club work. And now we're opening up for bands and, trying to get to some show and all that. So it all started up and we're so happy that it did, man. I'll tell you, we were so fortunate. I just did a song called wrong place, wrong time, but we were right place, right time back then. And uh, so, you know, the rest is like a long story voyage. Where do you want to go? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for uh, that foundational story. Um, I was really curious coming into this, you know, to ask you about that dynamic that you touched on, you know, being, you know, a white rockish band, you know, in that environment and, you know, the racial overtones and, and that kind of thing. And um, I think you, you addressed that, but it's certainly a interesting and curious dynamic um, that took place. And, you know, when I heard those songs as, you know, radio songs and having not seen rare earth at that time, I had no idea, you know, what color the group was. And of course I didn't care, but you guys had so much soul. It was so authentic that I kind of thought you guys probably were black. You know, well, where did you, <laughs> where, where, where did you get your influences as, as, as a singer? And how did you bring so much soul to what you did? I hope I don't get, I hope I don't get whatever over this, but people ask me, they say, oh, we always thought you were black. And I, I'm joking. I go, you know, I used to be, <laughs> And go, what are you talking about? I say, oh, you know, we laugh. It's Look, I grew up in Detroit. Uh, I, as, a, as a young kid starting to play music, I was not into feeling tensions because of different race. I wasn't into that. I know it existed. I have uncles and aunts and all that. I heard things. But in Detroit growing up, I knew there were areas of the city that I didn't want to go in because it was a tough neighborhood. Doesn't mean it's black or whatever. In fact, there were white sections. There were black sections. Never had to go in there because I was in band practice all the time. When I joined Rare Earth, they were called the Sunliners. They were all like 18 years old. They're out of high school. I was 16. I was a sophomore. So these guys became my mentors. And you know what? We didn't talk about race stuff and all that black, white, and all that stuff. We know it's out there, but we didn't, we weren't in it. And when we came to Motown or just music, uh, when we're playing music and somebody's over there playing an instrument and his emotions coming through his instrument and I can feel that it doesn't matter to me what color he is. I don't even see color. I see a guy that's laying it out there. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's what. It, so you asked me about my singing people. Well, I saw this guy walk in the club. Black dude. It turns out to be David Ruffin from the Temps. So I'm like, holy cow. I'm like a kid in an ice cream. So I walk over. Hey, David, how you doing? We got him to come up on stage. And he sat in with us on a song or two. When I was young, my mother took me down to Cobo Hall to see the Count Basie Orchestra. There was a drummer down there. I'm like 14. There's a drummer down there called Sonny Payne. 
he had the most beautiful white set of pearl drums, black dude, and he played. He was unbelievably great, and I just loved him. Then I, I saw that. Then I, I, I heard Ray Charles hit the road jack, What I Say, uh, 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 Honky Tonk by, uh, uh, I, I can't remember his name right now because I'm trying to think of 30 Hank people Ballard? at once. Huh? Hank Ballard? Is that that was Hank Ballard was the Midnighters. You're yeah. so fine. You remember that song? Yeah. Yeah. No, this was Bill Doggett. Oh, yeah. Honky Tonk. Well, in the clubs every night, we're playing Bill Doggett. Well, I'm in high school. My buddy and me, we go to his house in his rec room and we're playing Bill Doggett. We're taking Hank Bell. We're playing the temps, everything. And his father was a beer delivery guy. And he loved music. And every week he'd bring an album home and we'd listen to it. Etta James, Bill Doggett. So he arranged to take us, Danny and me, to a club called the Minor Key in Detroit. We were the only white people in the Minor Key. We were underage, but because he delivered beer, he knew the owner. He says, hey, you know, I want to bring my son just to check this out once. So they, they, we kind of worked it. I got in there. The place was jammed. It was shaped like a horseshoe. There was a balcony. And here, out on the stage, here comes Bill Doggett. And they start honky-tonk. And I'm telling you, that place lifted several feet off the ground. It was so exciting. So then, you know, like I said, Ray Charles and the test. I just loved R&B soul music. Because when I heard it, I felt really good. Because when the, these people recorded it, that's what was coming out of them was feel good. It was feel good. It wasn't, and I don't want to put down Frankie Avalon or anybody like that. They had their place. They were great, but it wasn't my cup of tea. So when I joined Sunliners and I said, do you want to sing a song or two? I went, yeah. And they said, what do you want to sing? I said, well, why don't we do Ain't Too Proud to Beg? Oh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. Yeah. So we worked that up. And then what about you know, and I went on and on and on. So I used to sing those songs. And although I can't, I don't think I can, sing like those people, like Ray. I mean, Ray Charles. Who can sing like Ray Charles? Ray Charles can snore and it's got soul. But anyways, I always liked doing the songs that they were doing. So a little bit of that got off on me, I think. And so people now, when they hear me in a show or something, they'll go, man, yeah, you know. You're an R&B guy. Well, great. Thank you. That's an honor to me to be called an R&B guy. You kidding me? That's what I always strived for. Anyways, sorry I'm going on so long about it. but No uh, problems, you know. Uh, that's you know, why we're here, to get to the truth and rhythm. Um, in fact, I, I got to tell you a Ray Charles story, man. This is true, if I can tell you. My son played pro baseball, and he was in Dallas in an away game. And he's standing in front of the hotel, and out walks a guy on his arm is Ray Charles. And they walk out to the street get into a limo and the guy puts Ray in the right side limo. Ray gets in and closes the door. My son says, excuse me. He says, man, if my dad knew that Ray Charles was right here next to me, he says, unbelievable. And the guy says, well, who's your dad? He says, oh, it's Peter Rivera, rare earth, blah, 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 blah. So the driver gets in the car and the back window goes down and Ray sticks his head out. He goes, young man, are you still there? He says, yeah, Mr. Charles, I'm right here. He says, you tell your father that I liked all his records. And I just, my son told me that. And I just went, holy cow. Because that's like, that's like walking with uh, a king, you know. Just Ray was just, I mean, I just loved it. And, you know, just things like that happen once in a while. It was really great. Oh, sorry. Okay, we'll go on. What else? What do you want to talk about? I'll talk about anything. You got me going here. Well, when you talk about, uh, you know, doing that sprawling version of, of uh, yeah. you know, get ready. Yeah. Where did that fall in the timeline with something like Inagata DeVita, you know, and some of those really, you know, stretched out songs that bands started releasing? Well, Inagata DeVita was, was 18 something minutes, actually. And I never cared for Inagata DeVita. I, I just wasn't my thing. I heard it. Just like Wipeout was not my thing. Wipeout. I just, oh, jeez. Anyways, it wasn't my thing. But oddly enough, in 1992, 
I joined up with Mike Panera from Blues Image that sang Ride Captain Ride. He played guitar. He also was for years with, with Iron Butterfly. And Jerry Corbetta, who played keyboards for Sugarloaf, Green-Eyed Lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Dennis Nota played bass for Land of a Thousand Dances, Cannibal and the Headhunters, and me, Rare Earth. So we went out as the four of us. We played together for 17 years. We played 150 to 175 cities every year for 17 wow. years. Yeah. And then, to, you know, that was 92 to 2011. That's longer than 17. But anyway, Jerry unfortunately passed. Had had some dementia, Alzheimer's thing, and, and and passed. And Dennis actually passed too. And Mike said, "What do you think?" And I said, "I'm done." It's 2011. I'm I'm I've been out there for 17 years with you guys and the whole rare thing and all that. I'm not done with music. I'm done being uh, one of the guys in the band. I want to do what I want to do, not because I got a big head about it, just. Uh, I don't want to see what you think about this song. You know what I mean? I just want to do it and you either like it or you don't, but I do it because I got to do it because I'm in my, t- I'm in the fourth quarter, man. And I know I am. And I got a lot I want to do yet. And some of it doesn't, isn't about having a four piece band. It's about having a 15 piece band and horn sections and all this stuff. So I have a brilliant producer who's a very dear friend of mine too. And we did two albums. Is What It Is is one of them. The next one is called Encore, which we just did, finished up. And it's got, I think, 13 songs. And every one of them is a horn song. Oh, it's just great. And now I'm working with a guy named Dan Cox in Nashville. He's an old friend of mine. He's a drummer. Great guy. He likes some of the ideas I'm coming up with. So we're doing songs together. We're about 12 songs into a new project. Totally different stuff. Totally different. But you know what? That's what I want. I don't want to, I don't want to sit here at my age and go back and try to cop the get ready again. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to get ready is get ready. Today is today. I don't know what will happen today, but I'm going to give something today. So well, that's what I got. I got to say, Peter, your, your voice still sounds great, you know? So uh, I don't know what you've done, but you seem to have taken good care of it over the years. And uh, nothing, nothing extra, nothing. Well, good fortune on that then. Oh, I, 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 I'm so fortunate, man. I am. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just, I really, I, sometimes I stop and think, I go, holy cow, because, you know, I'm not a lily white saint. I mean, I did some stuff, right? Uh, I never really hurt anybody, I don't think, but, you know, it's just like right now, I'm rehearsing because I've got a show coming up September 4th. I'm going to have a 14-piece band, orchestra, horn section, everything. And I'm doing six songs from this al- this horn album. And my producer, Dave, says, are you really going to do six and not like just two of them? I said, you know, Dave, I'm going to announce something and say, hey, folks, I got this album that I waited all my life to do. You want to hear some of it? And they go, yeah. I said, okay, fine. I'm going to give them six songs. And if they, they're not going to go boo or whatever, they might not, you know, jump for joy. But as soon as I'm through with those six songs, I'm going into losing you, born to wander, get ready and celebrate. Yeah, you do it for you and them. And, and hopefully they'll come them. along on the trip with the new stuff. Hopefully. It's just a yeah. bucket list for me, this this show. Yeah. And then the um, COVID thing took all the shows away from me. I have I have no more shows. I'm getting calls now, but we'll see what happens, you know. Peter, how, how was it, you know, when you first got out there as lead singer and drummer? I mean, there was inherent challenges in doing that, especially live. So, you know, how did you yeah. deal with that? Well, you know, I think from years in the club, I sang, I mean, I sang a Johnny Mathis song, and then I would sing a Sinatra song, and then I'd sing David Ruffin, and then Levi from the Four Tops, and then Chuck Berry. So I had to try to do all this different stuff. Did I pull it all off all the time? I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe the clubs were kind of crowded with people, so it wasn't bad. So when we did that Get Ready album, you know, I did that. And then we came back in. Motown did find a producer, Tom Baird, 
And Tom Baird was the B in hub, Horlbeck, Urso, Baird. And Tom came in and we did the second album called Ecology. And that's where Born to Wander was. And, and then we did Losing You and a bunch of other stuff. And the producers, when we're in the studio, I would sing and they would stop the tape. They'd say, what did you just sing? I said, well, I sang City. Born in the City. And they said, well, it sounded like you said Kitty. And then I realized what I was doing. I was going, born in the city. I wasn't really pronouncing my words. So I really went to work on that for a long time. Pronunciation. It's just like in this interview. You don't hear me mumbling any words. You can understand every word I say. And I'm kind of proud of that. In fact, I got to keep my mouth shut because when I'm in a room with people, I go, would you put on the closed captioning on the TV? They go, why? Is your ears bad? I say, no. It's just that these people are mumbling on TV sometimes. They really are. And if you look at it, sometimes you don't know what they're saying. Anyways, so much for me, big time. But uh, so how did I learn to do that? I learned because I, sp I spent the time to learn it all. And so when we had to start playing, I had stage fright. Because I was always wondering, well, what are people going to think me sitting at the drums? I'm not standing out there and waving my hands like uh, Sinatra and Perry, all that stuff. I, I, I'm not a front man. And I realized, too, that sitting at the drums is hard to be a front man. So what I started doing is moving the drums forward a little bit, much to the dismay of the guitar players and keyboards who wanted me to be back there. Anyways, now it's another reason nowadays I want to do it my way. I move the drums right up front because they say, well, why are you doing that? I say, because you know what I think after 50 years, I think people who, who like me want to see me play. Mm -hmm. They want to see me doing the drums and see me singing too. And how can they see that if you're in front of me? So move over. Anyways, sorry, but that's yeah. the truth. So I fight to be the front man guy. And, and I'll tell you what, if I, in this show I'm going to do, I called Dan Cox, my friend, he's playing percussion for me. And I said, Dan, maybe I'm going to have you play a couple songs on the drums because he's a great drummer. And then I thought about it, thought about it. I said, and Peter, what are you going to do while Dan's playing? Are you going to stand there and try to be Mr. Cool? You're not a dancer. You can tap your foot, you can wave your hand, but really... There's going to be some dead spots and you're, you're going to, and I'll get intimidated. I know I will. So I'm going to play. That's just the way it is. I got to do it that way. There you go. You know, speaking of uh, born to wander, I wanted to ask you if yeah. you recall, you know, how that song came to be, you know, and did you yeah. realize it was going to be a hit? Well, Tom Baird came to, we were playing in New York. This is early on, on the get ready album we're playing that shows and Motown and our manager at the time said, Hey, there's this young guy named Tom Beard. He's with Motown and he's an arranger and he's really kind of a sharp guy. And he's got some songs. You guys want to hear him? Yeah. So we met Tom and before the show, there was a piano in the room and he sat down. I says, well, Hey, you know what, what are we doing? What are we doing? He says, are you guys writing? And I go, no, we don't really write too much yet, you know, whatever. And he says, well, I got this song. And he goes, Dun, born to wander. I tell you, there's nothing you can do, girl. There's nothing you can say. You're talking to the sky, babe. I just got to get away. Got to find a wind singing in my ear. You know what I mean? And I, I heard that. I heard him sing it. And I just, I thought, okay. This is it right here. We are going to do this song. And I looked at the rest of the guys in the band, and fortunately, they were all kind of smiling. So now we made arrangements to go in the studio. And Tom came in. And with us, we had Kenny on keyboards, Rod on guitar, John on bass, me on drums, Eddie Kunga, Gil on the sax. And Tom sat down at the piano and kind of showed the guys what the thing was, the pattern. And they picked up on the bass and the guitar pretty soon. I mean, it took us a few hours to, to, to get it. But that's how we recorded. We, we learned the songs and played them over and over. And finally, we got a take. Well, that's a take. And uh, Born to Wander, we sang it. And did I know it was going to be a hit? 
Nah, I didn't know. We were just doing what felt good. And Born to Wander felt great. So did Satisfaction Guaranteed. So did uh, uh, Losing You. So did Eleanor Rigby. I mean, we did all kinds of stuff. How, how, how How was it decided? Was it Tom that decided to put the flute in for Born to Wander? Well, Gil played sax and and a little bit of flute in the clubs and stuff like that. So Tom says, well, you know, maybe, you know, like a flute on the intro. Well, Gil didn't really, oh, well, Gil's not the kind of guy, at least that I knew, that would just pick it up and be able to just jump on something really quick. So it wound up that I sang the part and I went, and Gil was over there with that, with that. Tom's listening. Finally, Tom goes, doesn't sound too bad. So now for the next hour or two, Gil owned the whole thing because he was putting the flute on Born to Wander. And it's that flute part, any other flute part or flute player, horn player, probably could have got that part completely done in like four Point six minutes but we were very young man and we were learning all this so it took gil a lot longer it took us probably a lot longer to do tracks too and it certainly took me a long time to do vocals i would stand in front of that vocal mic for four or five hours but i learned something very special when i was doing the vocals on born on on ecology album which is born to wander I got really bummed out because I just couldn't get this one thing. Oh, I can't get it. I can't get it. It was like three or four hours later, and we decided we'll come back tomorrow. And so I walked out of Studio A over to Studio B. And in Studio B, Cal Harris was an engineer. Rest in peace, Cal. I'm in Studio A. Sorry, man, I get carried away. I'm in Studio A, and I'm singing, and I can't get the part. I just couldn't get it. So after about four or five hours, we decided, ah, let's do it tomorrow. Okay, great. And I'm feeling bad, feeling like I dropped the ball, you know, that whole thing. And the engineer and Tom were going, hey, man, no problem. We'll just do it tomorrow. Okay, great. So I walked into the other studio, and in there was a guy named Cal Harris who was taking the microphones and stuff down. And on the floor by the vocal mic, the vocal booth, were those triangular water cups. You've seen them. they got a point on the end of them. You pull them up. There were about 30 or 40 of those laying on the floor. And I said, Cal, what's this? He said, oh, that's Diana Ross. I said, what? what? He said, she was in here for like six hours and couldn't get it. She said, she's going to come back tomorrow and do it. And I can't tell you the pressure that went off of me when I heard that. Because here she was, a very successful going through what I was going through, which was really nice and really helpful. So I I got off my own, you know, I got off my own back there after that and started to just believe that I I was one of the people that could do this stuff, sing it and all that. So, and I felt much more confident from then, then on. And I, I love Diana. Diana was really cool. When we first signed with Motown, we went to Hollywood and they, picked us up, a couple of us up, to go to Barry Gordy's house to meet him. Oh, well, the limo picked us up, and he circled all around L.A. because he didn't want us to know where the heck we were going. Turns out his house was only about a half a mile up the hill. But anyways, we got to the house. We went in, huge living room with several couches. And our manager and Barry sat way over there, and I sat way over here with Gil. And about 10 minutes into this, we weren't talking to Barry. He was talking to our manager. So we're just sitting there going, wow, look at this joint, man. Wow. You know, and this girl comes out and she sits down next to me and I I didn't pay much attention. I, I looked over and it's Diana Ross. And she looks at me and I said, Oh, hi, how you doing? She says, Oh, really great. She says, are you hungry? I says, you know, I am. She says, I got pizza in the kitchen. You want a piece of pizza? I said, I'd love that. So I got up with her, and I followed her down the hallway into the kitchen. And we weren't in there 10 seconds, and Barry Gordy was there. Boom. He was right in the doorway looking in. Because word had it that Barry would do anything to be with Diana. That went on for years and years and years and years. 
And Diana just played, you know, catch me if you can, catch me if you can. And so he paved the way and helped her out in her career. Not, not that she didn't deserve it. She's a great talent. Diana was wonderful, beautiful person. Barry, finally, I heard not too long ago that they finally did get married. I mean, Barry's like 88 or something. I don't know. But anyways, Diana Ross. You know, you mentioned on, on that uh, record, which was an amazing record, Ecology, Satisfaction Guaranteed. Yeah. A big highlight for me also and a nice place to visit. Um, yep. And and you worked finally, uh, you know, after doing some temps tracks, you worked with uh, Norman Whitfield uh, yep. on that. Right. Well, what was it like to work with him? Uh, well, Norman was one of these guys. Oh, who's that? Oh, that's Norman Whitfield. Oh, yeah. He does the temps. Yeah, he does all this. Uh, oh, yeah. He does uh, got all this uh, Rolls Royce and all these songs. Big time producer. Okay. We were in the studio one night. We were going to record. This is ecology. We were kind of warming up. We hadn't brought Tom in on it. Well, actually, we did, but this was a night where Tom wasn't going to be there for some reason, but we were in there. We were going to start working on a song called Losing You. And we're out there like, oh, what are we going to do? Trying to figure out, you know, trying to get into the groove of what's happening and all that. And all of a sudden, the door flew open, and here's Norman Whitfield. He comes walking in the room. Oh, wow. He said, hey, Norman, I'm Peter. Hey, I'm John, whatever, whatever. He said, what are you guys doing, man? He said, well, we're doing Losing You. We showed him what we were doing. He goes, you know, you can't do that song that way, man. I said, really? He says, no, no. He says, you got to change things up a little bit, you know. He took his shirt off, and he opened his briefcase, and he brought out a sweatshirt. He put the sweatshirt on, he pulled out a white towel and put it around his neck. And he looked at us as if to say, I'm going to whip you guys till you're wet, and then I'm going to put you away wet, whatever. So he came, and he's leaning over to me, and he says, and I'm going, and, 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 and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he walks over to John. You know, anyways, he's kind of suggesting things and john picks up on something yeah so he did that with the whole band and we worked that night and when we recorded losing you we gave him about 45 minutes of losing you and he'd walk over and he'd signal to stop but not you you keep going you keep going with his hand like this so he's kind of directing traffic right and we didn't know which end was up on that because we're just like, wow, this guy's freaking out. When we left the studio that night, he was sleeping on the control board. He had put in so many hours and had drained himself so far. We came back in the next day and he had that 45-minute stuff down to 10 minutes. And out of 10 minutes, he made a three-minute single. But one thing kind of crazy that happened the night after the when we came in the second night and we were listening to the track, there was a couple little overdub things and it was midnight. And my brother showed up at the studio with his friend and his friend was just in from Vietnam. And in Vietnam, the wives of the people there used to open up the cigarette packs called park lane and they'd fill them with weed. They'd put the pack back together and the packs, the servicemen would bring them home. So he brought to this park lane. And my brother comes up and he, I thought we were done. Midnight, we're done. We're going to go home now. So he hands, he holds out this joint. This is 1970, I think. Yeah. And he says, hey, Peter. I said, what? He says, smoke this. And I wasn't really, a, you know, whatever. But I thought, oh, I'll try it. Okay, yeah, sure. Well, I smoked some of it. And I'll tell you what, my brain... I just started going to Mars and back. I mean, I was really screwy. And Norman comes out the door in the studio. He goes, hey, man, let's do the vocal. <laughs> oh, God. And I'm walking. It's like I'm walking to the electric chair, right? <laughs> and I get in there in the vocal, and I tell you, you love is fading. I'm going, you love is fading. 
I feel it fade. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I got that vocal done, but I got it done in about two hours. And the next I heard of it, it was in record form. But you know, a couple years ago, Kanye West put a song out called Fade. It sold, it, it had 130 million views. And he took my voice. Your love is fade, fade, fade. I feel it fading. And then he did. I feel it. I feel it. 38 times through that single. And then MTV spotlighted his video of Fade on MTV Music Awards. And I was speaking at my friend Dave, the producer. He's also, he teaches at the University of Music Course. I went out to speak to his class, and one of the young guys and they said, Mr. Rivera, do you know you're on the radio? I said, oh, yeah, I'm on classic rock radio, stuff like that. Oh, no, no, Mr. Rivera, I mean, you're on the radio. So I, he told me, Kanye West, I didn't know from Beans. So I went home, looked it up, sure enough, I played it. I went, holy cow, and I counted the amount of times he put me on that record, 38 times. So I called my old attorney and said, hey, Alan, what is this all about? So Alan's been in, in communication with Universal and all that. Still haven't ever heard from Kanye. But I saw a big thing where he was presented a platinum album. And I wish there was a way for me to say, hey, Kanye, where's my platinum album? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just fun yeah. stuff. I'll never get That's it. That's not right. Okay. I don't that reminds me of the story. I had, I had Charles Wright on uh, recently, and he was talking about how NWA, you know, kind of took Express Yourself, and he found yeah. out from, like, a nephew or something that he was on the radio. And he's like, yeah. what are you talking about? He had no idea. No. And so he had to find out about it similar to you and then go after, you know, N NWA at that time. Well, I, there's a long story to this, but it comes out that Kanye's fine, and nothing came my way, really, from it. But it's just, I don't know. How, how did it feel? I don't know. You know. He took that, put it on his record. Oh, I don't know. And then I found out that, uh, oh, at least my, my, my voice and things I've sang, pieces of this and that, celebrate, going to have a good time. I mean, it's in the NFL, the NBA. The, I'm watching an NBA playoff game a few years ago, and I hear, we're going to have a good time. Just listen to the band. And the team's marching off. They're going to commercial. And they're playing that on the network and in the stadium as they go to commercial. I'm going, oh, great. Well, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're ubiquitous now within the culture. Whether you get checks for it or not is another thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, I and I, am I proud of that stuff? I am, man. I, I got to be honest. I, 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 don't, uh, I don't lay awake and just go, oh, gee, aren't I great? I, I don't do that. I don't live that way. But it is kind of nice to know. That somebody, you know, they kind of care about that. It's let kind me, of a me, legacy thing, you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. You've you've left a, a major impact on music and larger society through things like that. Yeah. So well, um, that's great. I mean, thank you very much. Anybody who's ever, you know, said, "Hey, I like that guy." Thank you very much. Hey, Peter, why do you think it was that? Um, when Norman Whitfield later produced an entire album for Rare Earth, it didn't, you know, hit like uh, you guys hit with this song. Yeah, well, <clears throat> we did Get Ready, then we did Ecology. We had a couple hits off of Ecology. Then we did an album called One World, and Tom was the producer there, and we had uh, I Just Want to Celebrate. And so in those three or four albums, we had about five big hits. Then Motown started believing that Tom Beard was really not the guy for us after all. So they brought in Tony Clark, the producer of the Moody Blues. And we're going, Tony Clark, what is this? Is Tony from Detroit? No, he's not. So anyways, we sit with Tony in a circle. And he says, we're going to write this album. I said, well, that's great, you know, because... We're doing all these other songs. But anyway, so we started to write this album. And after we wrote the ideas for about four songs or so, 
the people upstairs heard it. It's the last we ever saw of Tony Clark. He was gone back to England. So, and then they came on with a guy named Frank Wilson. Frank Wilson was a pretty good sized uh, uh, producer at Motown. He did Barrett Strong, I think, and a few other things. And he even did uh, Marvin Gaye a little bit too. So Frank came in and Frank was picking a few tunes and, and everybody thought, well, this is, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. We got into a little beef with Frank. I did. Because the band was trying to say, hey, we're writing stuff. We're writing stuff. And I heard the stuff they're writing. I'm going, you know, this isn't rare earth, man. This just isn't rare earth and where we're at, this feel, soul, funk. All of a sudden we had like this real pop kind of thing coming from our new keyboard player, Mark Olson. And so Mark was a little upset about that. And one night we're talking about songs with a meeting with Frank. And all of a sudden he says, yeah, and this one song, and he names the title of it. And I thought about that, and I went, gee, that sounds like something I heard here. So a few days later, we'll have a big meeting with the A&R guy. And we're at the board table, and I said to Frank, I said, excuse me, Frank. The reason we're doing that song, is it because it's really a good song, or is it because it's a squeaky wheel? And we're trying to grease it. And he couldn't really answer me. I said, because you know what? If we're doing that song because it's a squeaky wheel or some kind of political pressure, or I says, I won't ever sing another note for this band. It's not going to. Because at the same time, a couple of those guys were saying things like, well, we haven't had any hits lately. Maybe it's time to get a new singer. And I thought, you know, I, I, you know we're not coming up with the material. Why aren't we coming up with the material? Because we're not staying home. We're not woodshedding like we used to. We're not like Rare Earth used to be when there were sunliners. We're not practicing. We're not cultivating. We're not doing anything. We're just enjoying the success. And so, therefore, we're getting diluted all over the place. And so, oh, it's the singer's fault. Let's get a new singer. I said, as long as you guys look at life that way, man, we got a problem. And you know what? We never really got another hit after that. So I used to say... To my friends, good close friends, I says, you know, unless we hit upon that thing that we had as rare earth, that feel, the attitude, the unity, the support, the whole thing, we're not ever going to have a hit because hits are made when it's everything lines up right. So Motown got panicky. And they wanted us to do another album. And I told Frank, I'm a... so anyways, Frank was pulled off the project. Oh, we did three or four songs with him. Never really released. They put him on a 45. So once Frank was gone, then they didn't know where to turn. So they got Norman. And we set up the studio time and we went in and we set up in the studio, the drums, the keyboards, all the instruments. Hey, what's going on? And Norman comes in. And we said, Norman, we had this kind of groove, so we'd just play a little of this groove, you know. And then we'd play a little of this other groove and a little of this other groove. And the evening ended, and we went away, and we came back in a couple of days later with Norman. And all of a sudden, Norman had some songs with Guess whose Grooves. But we couldn't say anything, because that was the great Norman Whitfield. And we were just that band, that rare earth. So anyways, Norman proceeded, and we, we, we decided, hey, we're not going to rock the boat. We got a great producer here, Norman Whitfield. Maybe he'll get some magic on us. Not going to rock the boat. We're on thin ice now. So we did this whole album, and, and Norman Whitfield did this song called Ma, and he, it was a long song. And I don't know whether he thought that, well, we'll do a long song. People like the love songs, long songs with rare earth. No, they like to get ready because get ready was get ready. Now, if you want to make a long song again, that's fine. But let's think about this. What can we do that will be a vehicle for the length? Ma was not a vehicle for the length. It was just over and over. Okay, let's, 
How about a keyboard thing? How about this? How about that? And then we did a bunch of other songs. So the album comes out. Norman Whitfield's the producer. The album cover shows Norman Whitfield left the control board and the five or six of us all in a semicircle around him. And the picture is taken. So I tell people that in my opinion, we did, the, Norman Whitfield did an album played by Rare Earth. Hmm. And that's what it was. And that's why it didn't fly. Really. And I, I, mean, I do Norman, like Big Norman, I do like Big John is my name on there though. Big John. Well now Big John, yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Now Norman liked John Persh, our bass player. And you mentioned a song that John wrote, uh, Nice Place to Visit. You know. John was a great guy. He was like my best buddy. We went fishing. We laughed. We ate pizza. We loved everything together, John. And he died in 77. And he, he wasn't a druggie or an alky. He had a beer now and then. But he, he just got a some pains, went in for some checkup, and caught the hospital virus and passed. So Big John, you know, Norman didn't want to go Big Pete or Big Peter. So Big John. So we did Big John, and I don't know, it's kind of an odd-sounding recording, but it's kind of cool, and we do it once in a while live, but not very often, not very often. And uh, I like some of the words on Big John, you know, playing funky from the big city, this here band specialized in the nitty-gritty. I thought that was pretty cool lyric stuff. So anyways, there you go, Big John, and then Smiling Faces was another temp song. You know, yeah, I don't know if that needed to be redone again, honestly, at that point. No, I don't know either. You know, but I was up there smiling faces. Man, I could hardly hit those notes. And he just wanted it up there. The night we recorded that track, I wasn't feeling good. I didn't even go to the studio. He had somebody else put that little bass drum that boom, boom. I don't care. What do I care? Anyways, uh, there you go with the mind. Well, th and after that, they finally let us do our own album called Willie Remembers. And yeah, that was a more rock flavored for sure. Yeah, we brought Tom Beard back in on that one. Yeah. And I wrote, uh, you know, If I Die and The Seed. And I started to, I'm writing now about, you know, the war and social this and that and social this. Even now that I'm writing with Dan Cox, we have this song called Wrong Place at the Wrong Time. He was raised in a rundown city. The town was dirty and gritty. There was trouble most every night. Some people just wanted to fight. He was afraid to walk the streets. He never knew just who hid me. So he carried a switchblade knife. He was worried for his life. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Da da, da da. That's it. Well, that's it. Hey, I can't nice. do it anymore. Anyways, nice. I'm writing stuff like that now, and I'm with Dan Cox and Dave Siebert, my genius producer, and my band now is Joe Brash, who is a phenomenal hundred students a week guitar player. Danny McCollum is a professor at the music school. He's an unbelievable keyboard player. And then I have friends who are background singers and Dave Hutchinson on bass guitar, greatest bass player I've ever played with. And we work together all the time. And I'm here, I'm in the fourth quarter, and I'm going to stay here and just be with my friends and my family and live as long as I can. I got another song called The Reaper. Oh, yeah, The Reaper. You wonder why I'm still kicking? You wonder why I haven't taken a fall? I see the clock. It's still ticking. It's staring at me, looking down from the wall. But I'm two steps ahead of the reaper. He's got that look in his eye. Two steps ahead of the reaper. Mr. Reaper, I got no time to die. Ah, anyway, that's coming. Well, are, are you going to put out everything together in an album format? No, no. Uh, I've been convinced by different people that a lot of uh, things that are happening these days are people are releasing another single like every three to five weeks. And they're not throwing out a 12-song CD because I guess CDs don't sell anymore that much the way they did. So they put out a song. They figure 
if people like that song, they can like it for a couple of weeks and they get another one, get another one. Instead of saying, here's 12 of them. See if you find one you like. Because they believe that the other 10 don't really get heard. There's not enough attention on them. Anyways, this is the way some of it's going. So we decided, hey, we're going to do that too. But after you put 10 or 12 of them out and they're oh, out yeah. there, maybe then put them out as a comp compiled. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll do that. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you, uh, we kind of passed over. I just want to celebrate and I definitely yeah, wanted to uh, touch on, you know, the Genesis of that track also, because it's such a classic and so much better than the, uh, you know, celebration by another group. Uh, but, uh, in my opinion, oh, how did that you, song man. come to be? I think, so. I think so. Well, uh, when we were with Tom Baird doing the ecology album and we were getting ready to do another album, these two guys were writers. Nick Zesis and Dino Fakaris. And they were just two guys hanging around the studio all the time. They knew Tom. They were all friends. Tom says, yeah, these guys are right. They, they got some songs once in a while. Great. Okay. Well, we made arrangements to have Tom sit at the piano, and he was going to show us some Nick and Dino songs. And Nick and Dino were standing there right next to Tom because neither one of them were great piano players, and Tom was a phenomenal piano player. So he'd play the groove and all that, and Dino and, and Nick would sing their song. We're standing around a piano. It turns out that Nick and Dino went on to do all the Peaches and Herbs, Reunited, Shake Your Groove thing. Dino wrote, I Will Survive, Gloria Gaynor. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like two or three years later, I see Dino on stage at the Grammys, he's holding like a couple Grammys. I went, that little Dino. Because when he hung around those two little white guys in the early days, people didn't pay too much attention to him. Anyways, Tom showed us this song called Hey Big Brother. Hey Big Brother. You know, and we went, oh, yeah, that's, that's not bad. You know, what else you got? Well, we got this thing. I just want to celebrate. Another day of living. We just went, oh, yeah, that's pretty good, too. So now, the next night, we went back to what we were doing. And a few days later, we, we had a, 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 you know, a little time. And Tom says, hey, you guys want to look at any of those other things? I said, yeah, why don't we? What's that celebrate thing? So we started working on it. By the end of the night, we had a track. And we left for the night. Of course, it was like 2, 3 in the morning. We left, went home. We were coming back to the studio the next day because we'd block out like a week, 10 days. Every day, that's where we're going to be every day. So I came back about an hour, hour and a half before the studio time started on the second day. And I told Bob, the engineer, I said, let me have a microphone, man. So I had like a, a little, a regular Shure SM58. And I'm in the control room. Bob's right there. I said, play that track. So he plays that track. So I got the thing, and I'm going, I just want to celebrate another day of living. And I get probably two verses into the song, and Tom comes walking, and he came in early. And he looked at me and goes, yeah, man, yeah. I mean, he was pumped. And so I went, oh, yeah. So he come over and sat down. I says, you like this? He goes, oh, I love this, man. Let's do this. I said, okay. So boom, I went out in the studio. Tom and I and Bob, engineer, we start on celebrate, and the band's trickling in as time goes on. They don't know they don't know what's going on, but we're we're hot and heavy working. So we get it done, my voice done, and it only took like about an hour, and we put all the backgrounds on. Now. That's what we did in that session. So we had this thing called "I Just Want to Celebrate," and thought, okay, well, that's great. That'll be a good song, maybe, and let's go on to something else. Well, Celebrate came out, and it's I Just Want to Celebrate, man. It's it's a great tune, and it's so much fun because nowadays, you know, I get the people singing, and, and it's just a lot of fun. And, I mean, now that's 50 years ago. It still sounds so good today. How, how did you decide on that opening, you know, guitar riff? And uh, it just starts off with such, you know, so dynamically. Well, I don't know how we got that. 
I mean, Ray on guitar, or Rodney rather. I don't know how it started, you know, but they started with their sound, and Tom, somebody suggested, hey, man, let's come in on the counter off within that thing. So, one, two, three, four. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's as simple as that. And yeah, and listeners are on the hook immediately from that. Yeah. Um, There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.